Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. You know, this notion that those treaties and agreements were sort of the the pins that were keeping the international world order together is simply just, it's more myth than reality. It's American strength and hard power that, that backs up security commitments. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I've been teasing on the show recently, partly in some of the introductions, that as we get closer to the election, and we are now damn close to the election, I want to make sure this show is representing the debate the country is actually having, not just me talking to people I agree with or me talking to people on the right, but where we both kind of agree that Donald Trump is bad. Donald Trump is running for president. He is the incumbent. Um, He is behind, but there is always a chance he could win. And so I want to talk to people in the next couple of weeks uh, who, at least some people, who actually think Donald Trump should win, that he is a a good president, that what he has done is important, that his philosophy about the world or about domestic policy is correct. And I want to try to test the boundaries of those assumptions, put them into conversation with my own. So I want to start here with foreign policy. My guest today is Rebecca Heinrichs. She is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. She's been an advisor to congressional Republicans on foreign policy. She's a specialist in nuclear deterrence and missile defense. And she's an important and very clear articulator and defender of Donald Trump's foreign policy, which in my view has been his more coherent effect on the way we think about uh, national politics and policy. I think he has changed the foreign policy discussion in a more consistent and more lasting way, probably, than he has changed the domestic policy discussion, where he's been all over the place. There are at least a couple of assumptions in Trumpian foreign policy that are simultaneously followed by the people who he has appointed key positions, and have also, in my view, begun to change the, the, the Democratic discussion, too. I don't think the way Donald Trump thinks about healthcare has changed how Democrats think about it, but I can tell you with some certainty the way he thinks about China has. So I think understanding this and understanding what it looks like, not just um, from his words, which are sometimes all over the place, the effort to make it into a cohesive foreign policy that can be uh, articulated is worth doing. Um, as always in these shows, I, I want to be clear that this is not um, a debate where we are. I'm trying to win it. Uh, I did not ask Rebecca Heinrichs to come on the show in that spirit. It's not a collision. It's an exploration of these ideas. I'm trying to test their boundaries and put them in conversation with my own assumptions and beliefs about the world. But this is mostly to try to make sure this side of the argument is clear on the show, that there has been space to air it and space to test it. But don't go into this looking for someone to win or lose. That's not how I went into it, not how she went into it, and not the uh, not the hope for outcome here. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Rebecca Heinrichs. Rebecca Heinrichs, welcome to the show. 
Thanks. Thanks for having me here. So let's start with the, the big picture here. How would you describe Donald Trump's foreign policy? And, and particularly, how would you describe the break it made with the Republican consensus in foreign policy that preceded it? It's a great question. And I think it's actually one of the great achievements of the Trump administration is to make some important corrections from what has been a Republican and Democratic uh, national security consensus on the way the United States kind of engages with the world. And uh, there, there's really kind of two categories I think about. One is President Trump himself and the way his administration views threats and allies. And this has been this is something I think that is is unique to this administration. And one is, is that China is the primary threat to the United States. Now, to be fair, President Obama's administration recognized some challenges coming from China, and there were some key figures in his administration who, who tried to kind of reorient the United States to start taking the, the threats from China more seriously. But in the end, I would argue that those efforts failed. Donald Trump comes along you know, one of one of his attributes is that he sees everything in terms of competition, everything. And he wears Team USA jersey. And, and that kind of approach to the world, I think, has helped make some important correctives, mainly to, to see what China is doing in a variety of fronts as a threat to the United States' uh, superiority, economic superiority, military superiority. Um, some challenges in, in diplomacy and how China, through its Belt and Road, um, initiative has has been challenging the United States' standing in the world. And so he kind of comes along and and because of his personality and the way he views things as a competition, it it enabled his team to go in there and, and do make some very important changes that are that are abrupt and I think necessary and something that again, President Obama's administration was unwilling to do, President Bush's. And, and I would go back to the Clinton administration, ultimately, with welcoming China essentially into the WTO. And that was kind of the start that that enriched China so much. And uh, China, of course, didn't move away from its ideology led by the Chinese Communist Party. It didn't become more politically liberal. And it, it just enriched and embolden what the Chinese Communist Party was seeking to do, which is to challenge the United States as as global leader. When you say China's a primary threat, just what kind of threat is it? Is it the same kind of threat the Soviet Union was? Like, what is the right historical analogy or framework of danger to be thinking about here? So I don't I don't like the the analogy of of the Cold War uh, because I think that the, the the competition between the United States and China is going to be. Uh, a long term over the course of many, many years, probably decades competing with China. So it's not the kind of pressure cooker that the United States was in with the Soviet Union, where we had mutually assured destruction, nuclear missiles pointed at each other, and and we needed to kind of walk back that tense dynamic. So that that's so I don't I don't see it that way. The way I do see it though is there there is you know, global actors compete. We compete for influence. We compete to have our kind of system be the one influencing the way other nations operate, the way we do international trade. And for the last several decades, while the United States was kind of distracted and thinking that we're not going to have another world war like we had in World War II, and that the Cold War was averted and never went hot. And, and so we kind of were focused on the counterterrorism threat. Um, and we didn't we didn't invest in, hey, you know what? 
a global war is not something that that is just in the past and might never happen again. It might happen again, and we better prepare. So when I say China's a threat, I mean that China is the one country that has an internal sort of system of governance and ideology that is adversarial to the West and our partners' understanding of what, what makes for fair and peaceful trade and relations between nations. The kinds of things that you and I care about that are good for human flourishing, tolerance and um, transparency and fairness and you know, all, all of those things, religious toleration and freedom of speech and academic freedom, intellectual property security, all of those kinds of things the Chinese Communist Party does not adhere to. So as China has gotten richer and uh, bolder and as other countries have become very dependent on China, you know, we saw during the coronavirus pandemic, so much of our antibiotics are produced in China. Would be good to have those in the United States and not be beholden to the country that's the epicenter of the, you know, coronavirus outbreak and has a hostile kind of intent with the United States or our rare earth minerals that we need for all these kinds of key technologies for our military systems. All that's, much of that is produced and made in China. Um, so, you know, we want to increase American sovereignty. We, we, the United States, regardless of who the president is, would like to be the one who's the preeminent power um, and not cede that over to China. And on the current path that we've been on, China is, you know, looks, if you look at the trajectory economically, and they're taking their strong economy and they're pouring it into military technologies, that it, it, it could, we could see a time if we don't actually fight it and, and with, with intentionality compete, we could see a time, you know, in our lifetime where it's not the United States-led world, it's the China-led world. And so again, the Obama administration, there were some people who kind of saw that happening, beginning to happen and tried to make a shift, but ultimately it failed because it, it, it requires a lot of hard political choices, and it takes a personality, I would argue, of, of Donald Trump to come along and do the things that are necessary to get us um, on the right course. So I want to pull pull out a couple things here. So one, I want to note two things you said about uh, China, which is I'd say there's one category of issues where there's a, a question of us being dependent on China and China being worse than an unreliable ally, potentially in some ways an adversary. Um, so supply chain issues, rare earth minerals, antibiotics, that kind of thing. And that seems really quite important to me. And then the other thing you're pointing out here is influence. Um, there's a competition to be the leader of the world, as you as you put it, um, and China is developing influence rapidly, diplomatically, militarily, economically. And let me start on influence because I think it's very important. I want to pose to you a question that I've I, I got from Fareed Zakaria in in his new book, um, and he said that the question that U.S. policymakers almost never answer is given China's size in in population and economic weight, how much influence should it have in the world? I think there's some things to unpack in the question. First of all, I completely agree that the size of the economy does necessarily give it weight. So I think that's an important point to just kind of flesh out. So when people say, you know, well, can't, can't we just have all of these other powers kind of competing and nobody lead, you know, nobody be the leader of the world? And I would just say that that's just, it's not the way it works. The country with the biggest economy and what they do with that economy, which is what China has been doing what the United States has done in the past, which is you invest it in a military. So you have the preeminent economy and you have the preeminent military. And that hard power and that economy is what makes your soft power 
work. So the question, you know, should it, I would just say it does. Just by having the, the size of the economy that it has, nations operate in their own interests, whatever interests they perceive those to be. And so China will necessarily have a lot of influence simply because of the size of its economic engine. So if it's going to have that influence, then you can see where this gets a little fuzzy. If it has that many people and it's going to have the influence of the size of the economic engine, they probably, they arguably already are the single biggest economy in the world, definitely will be in the future. Then what is our goal here? How should we understand it? And are we trying to stop them from having an influence commensurate with their size? Or are we just trying to change the way it is wielded or trying to change the balance of our influence? Like what is the, the aim here? Yeah, I would say the last point would be large countries that have the most influence can either decline through war or you decline by acquiescence. And I would argue that it is the Trump administration's desire to avoid war, as is, you know, everybody, I think, would agree that that's, we're trying to avoid war with China, apart from just a couple of people who argue that we we should. I don't, I don't think there's anybody credible in the national security space that would argue that we, that we welcome that. So we're trying to prevent uh, a war with China. So then the other way that we can decline as a power is through acquiescence. In other words, by allowing China to overtake the United States economically and by increasing its, its influence by just the sheer power that it has through the size of its economy. So, so what should the United States do? I would argue that what President Trump um, has been seeking to do through these trade wars and through trying to bolster the American economy, trying to shore up um, manufacturing in the United States, our sovereignty is improved as we move uh, our dependence from China and back to the United States and through our allies. So we're working with Australia now to create some economic resilience so we're not dependent on China. So so you're quite your your the answer to the question is our goal is to is to move hard to shore up where our economic strength is and to ensure that that China doesn't surpass us. I don't think it's inevitable. Some would argue it's inevitable that China will surpass us, but you know what I have tried to say over the last few years is clearly what the national security experts around President Trump have been striving to do is to say we're not going to simply allow this to happen by acquiescence. We're going to we're going to work to compete. We're going to compete hard with China. And that's economically and it's militarily. So uh, that that that's the goal. That the goal is to not simply just kind of say, well, we've had a good run of it. And now it's the Chinese Communist Party's turn to have the reins for a while. So I, w- I want to live inside this framework for a minute because I, I struggle a lot with the question of, of how we should think about China and come out different places on different days. But, but I want to take, like, let's say that I take the Donald Trump or Rebecca Heinrich view, like, fully. My question here is if Trump is pursuing this effectively. I believe that he believes all this. I believe that he thinks China's rise is a threat and we should basically make sure America remains the preeminent nation. But as you've said already here on the show, this is a war for influence. And when I look at the sum total of Trump's actions, behavior, and his foreign policy, he does not strike me as somebody who is systematically and strategically 
increasing America's influence. He has, if you look at polling on America, we have one of the worst standings in the world that we've ever had. If you look at our relationships with key allies um, in Europe, those relationships are very weak right now. South Korea has moved closer to China over the past couple of years. That Trump, because he was not willing, in my view, to say, this is my goal, and I'm going to make other compromises elsewhere to make sure that we're building the alliances necessary to uh, be able to achieve that goal. He's got this as a goal, but I would say that our position vis-a-vis China, certainly prior to coronavirus, had weakened in terms of global leadership and things like their um, diplomatic campaigns, their centrality in international institutions that we had begun pulling out of had made it much harder for us to compete with China. Um, And it made it much harder for us to continue having the same level of global leadership vis-a-vis China we'd had before. Tell me why I'm wrong on that. So I think that President Trump's personality clouds I would argue, the way we see kind of realistically what is happening, some of the movements, the the polling that you cited is something that a lot of the president's critics point to. I I would just point out that polling among some key allies, including Western European countries, has looked like that for many years now. No, but it has gone down. I mean, I was looking at a Pew poll that goes back for 20 years. Yeah. So, okay. So it's gone down in terms of, I mean, favorability towards the United States. But my point is, though, some questions that were on that poll, if we're looking, talking about the Pew Research poll, one of the questions, and I don't have it right in front of me, but was essentially to Germans, you know, would you support the United States in a war, you know, if if it was attacked? Something like that, you know, something, Article 5 being invoked and then for the NATO alliance. And it's it's been hovering in very concerning low numbers for a long time, even during the Obama administration. So so I, I think that there are some... That, that that polling kind of is, it's polling populations. It's not insignificant. I just don't think it's the only thing to consider here. So, so something that I've been tracking and looking at what's going on, big movements on the board. If you think of the, the, the globe and countries as chess pieces and some things that are moving around, we've seen some serious progress of, of what some have kind of called the Asian NATO, this idea, this concept of the United States cooperating with countries close to and in the backyard of China, Australia, India, um, Japan, obviously, and the United States, or, or more officially, the Quad. Our, our military and our defense cooperation has, has grown, has improved. Some important conversations are being had about, about um, some weapon systems that the United States can base or deploy in that area in order to deter China. Uh, And we're able to do that because President Trump, I think, rightly withdrew from a treaty called the INF Treaty that the United States had with Russia for many years. But Russia was cheating on that treaty and China was developing the kinds of weapon systems that treaty prohibited. So you got a personality like Trump that comes along and says, wait, the Russians are cheating. The United States is the only country restricted by the treaty. Let's pull out. We did. And now we're building um, and the military is requesting some of those weapon systems to get deployed in into the, the area where we would like to deter China. And we're cooperating with our allies. We're, we're doing lots of intel sharing with our, with our allies with uh, w- uh, to, to kind of deter and to get a better handle on what's going on with China. We're working with the Brits on making sure that they're not taking very concerning big tech, you know, whenever you think of Huawei and, and that kind of thing, that we're persuading our allies and partners, listen, the United States is is in the game. We're going to compete with China and you should not, in looking at the, the lay of the land, bank on China being the preeminent global power. We're, we're here. And, and so, you know, you've, you've seen Prime Minister Boris Johnson making hard choices about choosing not to go with um, some of the 
the networks that, that he had previously wanted to go to that would harm the intellectual property and the big data uh, of, of Britons. And so, you know, I, I, I think that that is overplayed, this idea that America is standing. If countries are going to act in their interests, you know, that countries will act in their interests and they might not like the personality of Donald Trump, but when you can see the things that he's doing and with the direction that the United States is going, ultimately countries, when they're, when they're being asked, you know, you can make a decision here. Do you want to embrace the kinds of censorship that we see? And National Security Advisor O'Brien recently made this point really well in an interview where he said, if you look at the domestic actions of the Chinese Communist Party, the massive surveillance, the censorship of speech, you know, you know, putting, clamping down on academic freedom, anything that's hostile or, or, or critical of the Chinese Communist Party. And they don't just keep that domestic. They apply that. You've seen that with the United States, you know, with the NBA. You've seen that with some academics in other countries. So China's going to continue to do that kind of censorship as it, you know, has this long reach outside its borders. And I think because of the approach this administration has taken, you've had some countries decide, you know what, we're not going to go that direction. We're going to go the direction of the of the United States' um, initiative. And 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 we have had some some great successes. I think that's actually a really important point. And I want to actually give the Trump administration some credit on this one, that I really do think it's true that Trump has, in the rhetorical and philosophical stance he's taken towards China, emboldened a lot of other players to then even go further, right? And to criticize things like what's happened with the NBA and their censorship towards China. I think the Republican Party is in a somewhat different position on China generally than it was a couple of years ago. And I see it among Democrats too. There's simply no doubt. And this also reflects things that have happened in China with Xi and, you know, going into a much more authoritarian direction and the sort of final collapse of the dream that China would democratize as it became more economically interwoven into the global system. I really think Trump has opened space for that. And I think if you don't give him credit for that, you're you're, you're missing it. Um, on the other hand, the, this is where I do wonder if Trump himself is truly following the things you're sometimes giving him credit for. Like for instance, in terms of Chinese repression, there are now very credible accounts from Bolton and others that in his effort to try to get China to buy more soybeans to support re-election, Trump told them that, you know, what they were doing to the Uyghurs was fine and he would have done more or less the same thing. Um, and there have been key places where he's not decided to challenge them as aggressively as one might imagine. And I do think the, the foreign standings are important. I take your point that countries act in their own self-interest, but I'm a politics guy. So leaders act in their self-interest and they have to do what their political coalitions will allow them to do. And, you know, their key th like in Germany, and this is getting into a little bit of a different part that we'll probably get into later around our alliances, Merkel wants to increase defense spending on NATO. And she's had trouble in her own political coalition in part because they're so angry at things Donald Trump has said about Germany and about NATO that they don't want to let her. And so she hasn't in, uh, to the degree that maybe she otherwise could have. And so I do think that ability to bring together soft power and be consistent, it actually is important. I mean, I wonder to some degree if Trump doesn't if Trump hasn't opened up space that it's functionally going to be for others to pursue in a kind of consistent way, because he kind of pinballs around. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of points. One, I'll, I'll take the, the the reference that you made about the Uyghur camps, the indoctrination, horrible, I would argue, concentration camps that China's been offering, persecuting the, the Uyghur Muslims. So I, I think very highly of John Bolton, and I have not read his book. I've only heard the the snippets that have come out in the media. And um, I think I would I would just say on on that one point, obviously, President Trump has said that that's not true and his, uh, 
the, the specific point that you mentioned that it's not true or it's been misunderstood. I think that there, and I, this is part of the president's fault, I absolutely readily admit that, but I think that he is, and the kind of rhetoric he uses is very easily misunderstood. <laughs> so what I have tried to do to, to really cut through the noise and understand what is actually happening and the impact of the Trump presidency is to look at what has actually happened in the world. And I would just say through the Trump administration, and, and this is from conversations too I've had with the people who are briefing him on these issues and the ones that are putting together and implementing his strategy and his national defense strategy and his approach towards China, which I recommend the White House put out this document. I think it's called like the strategic approach towards China. It kind of lists what the way, the way this White House understands what it's trying to do. But there has been sanctions implemented against people in China who are responsible for those Uyghur camps. There is, you know, you have high-level cabinet officials from, you know, obviously Secretary Pompeo talking about those Uyghur camps and, and shining a bright light on, on that. And the reason that's important, of course, is not merely for altruistic humanitarian reasons. It's because you cannot separate how a country acts in the world without looking at how it treats its own people. And, and so you 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 want to know why would why should the American consumers expect our intellectual property to be protected when the Chinese Communist Party is perfectly happy and willing to operate a massive surveillance state in order to censor and control its own people. Um, so, so I would kind of, that's what, how I would answer that, that particular question. The other thing that I would say about um, soft power, again, I, the way I view this is, you know, con- countries simply do, just do not act out of, of altruism. They act out of their own self-interest. And so, um, and, and, and that's ultimately backed in, in, and backed by hard power. And underneath, underneath all this soft power is, is hard power and, and how countries are actually able to move and act and influence in the world. And, and so if you look at NATO, you mentioned, you know, you have had countries that have promised to commit more money to collective security, which is something that's been really important to, to President Trump. Obviously, he talks about how the United States, you know, we offer a lot of protection to our NATO allies. And so you want to see our allies contribute that. It's not just a military alliance, it's a political alliance as well. But to Angela Merkel in particular, and this is something, again, that has been repeatedly brought up, she has taken an approach towards Russia in particular that is a problem for NATO. So Nord Stream 2, this big energy pipeline that she has insisted on having with the Russian Federation. That, that, in and of, that is a major problem for NATO cohesion and, and the strength of NATO. So the, one of the things that President Trump continues to point out, and by the way, this was a problem during the Obama administration. It's just that a lot of these conversations were held you know, privately or not as, not as bluntly as Trump speaks about them. But it is true that, you know, as the president trying to beats the drum, or as the president Trump continues to get NATO allies to, you know, beating the drum of they need to contribute more money, that you have a prominent NATO member who's undermining the security of the alliance by emboldening and strengthening the very country we're seeking to deter. So I, I, I actually have welcomed these the, the harsh language towards Ch- Chancellor Merkel. Um, I w- have argued, though, to your point, I, I, I recognize that it is not without some cost. And I would hope that after, if the president, if tr- Trump does get a second term, that though we continue to press on these points, that we move them to the private sphere 
and highlight a more cohesive diplomatic, you know, approach effort to show where we have common interests and cooperation. But but I, I don't think that that what President Trump has said has has been either untrue or, you know, I think maybe for a time, for one year term, bringing these to the surface and beating this drum has been a useful thing and and overdue. I just wouldn't recommend it as a sustained policy approach for over many years. Desert Clan Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. When you say that Russia is a country we sort of, we being NATO, are, are trying to deter. And I, I take your point on, on Merkel and the energy pipeline. Definitely not something I'm an expert on, but but I've read enough on that to, to think that's basically correct. We've also done a lot to embolden Russia in the past couple of years, which uh, I won't make us go through in detail. But among other things, the possible withholding of aid to Ukraine in order to investigate Joe Biden's son and the generalized nice commentary about Putin over and over again. That's that's created some real cracks in this. And one of the reasons I, I, I think that's important is to your point about Merkel, there is a certain amount of self-interest that in any alliance you have to get individual countries to betray in order to act collectively in a way that betters them all, right? There's always going to be a real return to being the defector um, because it's going to be worth a lot to the country you're trying to deter if they can begin to peel individuals off so they can give those individual countries really good deals on this or that to do it, all the way from election help to energy pipelines to whatever. And I think that's where I get into a real uh, concern with, with, with Trump and the sort of contempt, I think, for multilateral institutions uh, and and also alliances where he feels we're being ripped off. To me, when I look at him, the very consistent thread of his foreign policy isn't so much a theory of great power competition and what our alliances look like versus what our enemies look like. He doesn't like the feeling that he's getting ripped off. And if he feels it's China ripping him off or he feels it's Germany ripping him off or the UK or Ukraine or whomever, he's going to react to that in a very sort of like almost case by case way without much of grand strategy, when it seems to me that in order to pursue these much more difficult ends judiciously, you end up needing to have a lot of restraint over long periods of time, sometimes swallow things your allies did that that you didn't really like, but it's because you're trying to, to, to build something bigger. And that's my concern about Trump, that he never really seems to me to be trying to build something bigger. He'll point out flaws in our alliances or flaws in our multilateral institutions, but not really with any consistent eye to, to to rebuilding them in a different way. Um, he just sort of likes people who like him and doesn't like people who he feels doesn't like him or aren't giving him a good deal. It gets very easy to, in my view, go down different rabbit trails of this administration and I think have an incomplete picture of what's actually happening if one focuses merely on the tweets and the the little blips of statements that we hear from, from President Trump with the media as he kind of jockeys with them or in an anonymous source citation in an article that the administration immediately denounces or refutes. I mean, this stuff is stuff Trump is saying. I'm not just anonymous sourcing. No, I know. Well, it depends yeah. on what it is. I mean, I would think, but I mean, I take I take your point that, you know, we're, we're seeing the thing about President Trump that's different and obviously his personality. I just don't see it all as bad. Some of it, I think, has had bad effects. Some of it's had good effect. He's kind of a blunt weapon and he he thinks out loud. So we have the benefit of hearing some of him think of his thoughts being, being tossed around and we see some of the soup being made. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I look at the results and what's actually happening. And like I said, because I see some great achievements that have been wrought out as a result of the of the Trump presidency, that doesn't mean that I recommend every single subsequent president adopting the same approach of Donald Trump in all of the ways that are unique to his own personality and style. What I do mean, though, is because of the way he is and his willingness to buck the consensus, his willingness to say, I don't care if Macron doesn't like it. It's very, very popular among the United States' population. For instance, here's a great example. Moving the American embassy to Jerusalem in Israel, that was something that was passed bipartisan. It was a law. It was in the law that the United States would move our embassy to Jerusalem. And every president since that law was passed has used their waiver authority to avoid what they believed would create a larger problem between the Israelis and the Palestinians and all the European allies who were more favorable towards the Palestinian approach. And so they used their waiver authority. President Trump comes along and says, okay, it's very popular among the American people. And I'm going to back Israel as I try this new approach to the Middle East, and I'm going to take this issue just off the table as we move forward. And he did it. That was a very Trumpian thing to do. So again, you know, I'm not arguing kind of with, you know, my whole thing is to try to be a moral realist here. I'm trying, I don't, I want to see things as they are, and and I want the United States in, in using our own principles and systems of government to try to do what's best for our own people and and those other countries who share our interests and um, and would like to see the United States continue to be the world leader and not China. Um, but, you know, so I'm not, I, I don't have any sort of dreams about President Trump sitting around and thinking about grand strategy here. But I do think, that, again, because he's a populist and he thinks about what is good for the United States and then which other countries are willing to come with us and help us out, that has been a useful corrective. And, uh, and I would argue we could use another dose of it for another four years because I'm afraid that, a, that a, a President Biden, though, to your point, I do think that he will build on some of the progress of this administration because I think the ball has been moved down the field. But I don't think it would be to the same tempo and same, um, you know, kind of decisiveness that we've seen from the first term of a Trump presidency. I'd like to hold on the multilateral institutions question for, for okay. a couple of minutes because I think it's really important. Um this is sort of my foreign policy thinking here, which is going to be weaker than yours because it's not my issue uh, by, by quite a bit. But the thing that I wonder about, Trump has pulled us out of all kinds of deals from the Paris Climate Accords to the Iranian nuclear deal. He's pulled us out of the WHO. Um, he had said they had 30 days to reform. 11 days in, he pulled us out. He has pulled us back from a number of things, um, I would argue from NATO, certainly from the UN. I think some of that is sort of more longstanding in Republican circles that that would be a good idea. And in each one of these cases, I think you can make, I mean, I am very upset about the Iranian nuclear deal and, and climate accords, but people just have different views on that. But in these broader institutions we've been part of for a long time, I don't think it's hard to make the case that these institutions have failures, that at times we get um, the short end of the stick, uh, that there are all kinds of reasons to be frustrated in them. What I don't really see so much is the construction of alternatives or a consistent kind of pressure for constructive reform that other countries would be able to get into. And the reason I worry about it is that when I think about our coming threats, I take the point that China getting stronger and the U.S. getting weaker, I think would be a bad thing for the world. And so I, I actually take that as a threat. And I certainly think an extended period where the U.S. and China are at each other's throats is also really, really dangerous. If we have to use some of this military deterrence, I'm very afraid of the world my son is going to grow up into. 
But also I see a lot of very big collective threats. Um, the pandemic is certainly one of them. And uh, I don't think any of us would defend the way China acted in it, but I don't see a world in which China and America are in a deeper kind of angry competition as one where they were likely to tell us about this new disease earlier. Climate change is another. Um, cybersecurity threats are, are, are another. There are all kinds of existential risks that, that worry me. And so I feel like you do need these institutions. I'm open to the critique they need to be different or we could be better in terms of how we relate to them. But I see oftentimes Trump's foreign policy and that kind of conventional wisdom bucking that you're talking about as acts of negation. But what I don't see as much are acts of construction. So can you talk to me in terms of his achievements, like what you see as the acts of construction that will help us handle some of these collective threats? Sure. So I, I first of all, I, I would just say, you know, I would, I would think I would join you in your desire to not see the United States withdraw from the world. So disengagement would be bad. So you, you can't just go it alone on everything and then expect your allies and partners to come alongside you when you need them in a pinch. And so, you know, I again, I think that I, I embrace and have frankly been very pleased with many of these corrections that the Trump administration has made. And I'm supportive of the United States withdrawing from the Iran deal because of the flaws that were in it. Um, I agree that when President Obama said no deal would be better than a bad deal. And so I thought that the Iran deal was a bad deal. So but your, but your point is well taken that, you know, we, we don't want the United States to just simply be the, be the bully in the sandbox here. You're going to have to get along with your partners and allies and come up with some constructive things. I do see, I mentioned, you know, greater partnership with the Quad, this now, this idea of this modest version of an Asian NATO is a good thing to cooperate. Uh, I concede that it can be a bad thing that President Trump withdrew from one of the Obama administrations. One of the things they like to point to as his great achievement is the, the TPP, which is a you know trade kind of alliance partnership to kind of box out China. That if the Trump administration doesn't replace that with something in the second Trump term, that that could be a net failure. Although we did see the Trump administration withdraw from NAFTA and and did negotiate a better NAFTA, which you know it's kind of gotten some of the Democrats kind of turned into a pretzel to explain why this would be a bad thing because it is an improved trade deal. So there's another example. Um, I would say, you know, obviously we've got the, the the Trump administration has created the conditions for normalization between Bahrain and Israel and UAE and Israel. And I'm hopeful the big one that I would love to see is normalization officially between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Israel. All of these things, the credit obviously goes to the heads of states of those countries, but it is the Trump administration, the United States, creating the conditions that makes those things possible. And that's a constructive good thing. And then I would also say, too, you know, again, yeah, we, you, we, you're concerned about pulling out of those treaties and, and agreements. I would just say, you know, this notion that those treaties and agreements were sort of the, the pins that were keeping the international world order together is simply just, it's more myth than, than reality. It's American strength and hard power that, that backs up security commitments. And if we need to adjust or renegotiate or pour, pull out of and construct new organizations and, and um, trade deals and agreements and security deals, I think that we, we can kind of take a deep breath and do that. You know, the Cold War is different. <laughs> the Cold War was different than it is now. We've got different power players. And so it makes sense to update some of these old treaties and agreements that were negotiated 
many years ago. So I, I would just kind of caution people against worry and concern and, and look for, again, I just pointed to some of them, some of the great improvements and, and new things. Oh, pulling out of the WHO is another one. People were very hair on fire about that one. But the United States is taking all of that money and putting it towards other world health um, efforts and organizations. And I would I would love to see um, another organization created that includes Taiwan and boxes out China so that you, again, you reward the countries that are responsible international actors and you box out China. So I want to actually put a pin in Saudi Arabia and come back to them because uh, there, there's some questions I have about them very specifically. But on the WHO, which I think is a good example of this, I don't particularly want to sit here and defend some of the things the WHO did in the run-up to this. I think they did not, like a lot of institutions, but quite specifically, did not cover themselves in glory here. On the other hand, we are dealing with the ongoing reality of a global pandemic, a virus that clearly respects no borders, clearly is an international problem that can only be fixed with certain kinds of international cooperation, and very obviously is not the worst of these we can imagine. Um, all kinds of viral threats that we track, pandemic threats that we track, could be either more contagious, more lethal, or both. And the idea then, one, we have not built a rebuilt a WHO or strengthened the existing WHO. So we've now we're living inside this threat with nothing to replace sort of the one venue of significant international health cooperation we had for tracking this kind of threat and trying to have better information about it. So rather than learn from failures, it feels like we just kind of backed off. I take your point that maybe building something else would be better, but we just that's kind of my concern, that I don't see us doing that. Instead, it seems like they, as I understand that story, the Trump administration told the WHO it had 30 days to make some pretty big reforms. There was a belief that they were actually doing some real work on that. Then 11 days into that 30-day clock, we just walked away, um, which doesn't strike me as a good incentive set. And then the idea that we would have one of these without China when part of the problem here is obviously that China did not tell people early enough what was going on and they were not then taken seriously enough early on, particularly by us, uh, that that feels to me like actually the hardest space in this. When you have these issues where, yes, the people we need to cooperate with are not great to cooperate with and we have some real problems with them, but also like the threats still need cooperation. That's true on viruses, it's true on pandemics. Like one, we're not building the secondary WHO, but even if we were, how could one that doesn't include China possibly be adequate when we're living through something right now where a lack of cooperation with China is part of what led to the problem in the first place? I, I think that your concern is a legitimate one. And I would say I'm open to the idea of creating some other kind of venue for cooperation. I would just still say the onus is still on the Chinese Communist Party to cooperate transparently and fairly. And the reason we ran into such a problem with the WHO is it's not just China's kind of bumbling, accidents happen, these sorts of things can, I'm not talking about the actual outbreak of the virus. Things absolutely do happen because of just nature. Nature can happen and cause great problems for the United, you know, for, for all human beings. Um, we do need to contain nature. We need, we need a, to contain, a, a, we a do global need to. multilateral effort to contain nature. I guess you could actually define humanity as exactly that. You, you, you <laughs> still have some things that are happening outside of our control that affects all of us outside of our own national borders. And so some efforts to, to work to mitigate those problems would be a good thing. Okay. Having said that, the reason we ran into such problems with the coronavirus was, was that you know, here we are, we've got this organization, international organization, and China not only didn't tell and inform the WHO about what was going on, but then by the time that it that it did, it had 
censored and, in fact, imprisoned some of the doctors that were trying to raise awareness about it. I think there was one doctor I lost track of, of this individual who was running a lab, um, who, who that lab was shut down after that individual, this research scientist, tried to get some of the data about the first strand of the virus out to other international inspectors. And so it's this idea that if you have another organization and we continue to welcome China is, is going to be necessarily a productive thing, I think is just wishful thinking. And then once we did have inspectors that went in-country into China, we went into the wet markets and the wet markets had been sanitized, totally deconstructed and sanitized with no, no um, samples left of the animals that were supposedly infected by the virus, which prevents doctors and health professionals from being able to understand where we are in the life cycle of this particular virus, and which raises very serious concerns about what else China is lying about. And that's why Australia, for instance, wanted to have an international kind of investigation into, into what actually went, was going on at, at the earliest onset of this outbreak. And then you had China respond by threatening economic punishment Australia merely for asking a completely reasonable question. So the problem is there, and I want to just acknowledge the problem that you point out is a real one. It's just that I would suggest that it's not the United States's ultimate fault for the problem existing. It still rests with China. So we can still possibly, again, my mind is open. I'm not an expert on this particular issue in terms of how the WHO operates. But if we were to have something like it and an avenue for China to participate or at least be transparent, I can see that happening. But but they can't be rewarded. And the WHO was truly a mouthpiece of China. And it was, even to take the China issue out, it had become a really corrupt organization in terms of just the individuals that were operating it. So I think it does make sense to try to start over. And again, we're still, we still have international inspectors and cooperation going on with other countries, even though uh, we are winding down our participation in the WHO. But this strikes, strikes me as actually a very important question. So taking the point that may, that we did not create all these problems, um, there still are problems, right? I mean, we're still dying from coronavirus here. So that that's a little bit of my, this I think gets to not even something I'm so much critical of the Trump administration of, but something that I think is just a very, very difficult foreign policy question going forward. Trump, I think, operates on a kind of transactional reflexivity in terms of the way he approaches foreign policy. So you did this to me and I'm going to match that back to you or worse, right? Like I'm going to go bigger back to you. When sometimes if you want people to stop acting a certain way, you need to like find a way to break those cycles. And I recognize like the difficulty of not wanting to reward countries for bad behavior. But again, for everything you just discussed in the way China covered this up, in the way they didn't speak quickly enough, in the way they didn't share information quickly enough, do you think, like actually just do you think a world where we have isolated them out of things like this imaginary successor WHO, but also just a world in which we are clearly looking to pounce on them um, and, and, and punish them? Um, is a world where they would be more cooperative the next time? And if the like, because it seems to me no. And then the answer, if the answer is no, then we're in what strikes me as like a difficult question of how do you, like, how do you get the outcomes they want if they're not emotionally satisfying the means by which you would have to pursue them? It's a big question. I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that we totally make a pariah out of China. It's something like what we've done with North Korea, for instance. That's that's not what I'm arguing. What I'm what I'm arguing though is, is especially just staying just just to kind of wrap our minds around the issue. If we just stay on the WHO point, it's not just that we're punishing China by pulling out of the WHO. It's that we're no longer enabling and enriching individuals that were doing 
actual harm to the United States, that our taxpayer dollars can be better spent elsewhere. And the, and the Taiwan issue is a big deal, too. Taiwan had some information that it was trying to alert to international bodies, um, but it was boxed out. You know, Taiwan's been boxed out of the WHO. And so, you know, again, I'm what, what I'm arguing for is that it does make sense then to adapt and tweak. I'm not saying that we box out China forever, but we simply, the, the, the WHO had become so corrupt and, and, and just irredeemable in terms of its willingness to carry water for China, that it was bad for the United States in this moment to continue funding that international organization. So I, I want to make sure that I'm clear, you know, I think we can kind of inadvertently even create a straw man. I'm not suggesting that we punish China left and right, because I, I certainly do not want to create an environment where we are accelerating the animosity openly between the two nations in such a way that uh, we're creating a bigger, more volatile dynamic between the two countries. I'm, I would definitely not be supportive of that. Which brings me to another point that you mentioned I think was good. When we talk about, when I say deterrence and our military deterrence and kind of reorienting our milita military to deter China in the Indo-Pacific theater, I'm actually saying that it's, it's in order to prevent war. So there's different schools of thought on this. The one that I'm persuaded by is the longer the United States remains disadvantaged in that region, and we have been because we've been focused on long wars in the Middle East by, and, by and have not been paying enough attention and by not having the right kinds of military systems there and the troops there and the partnerships there, that we are actually unintentionally inviting aggression that can spiral out and lead to a larger war. We would like to get on the front end of that and prevent that from happening which is why we're rebalancing and, and really finishing what the Obama administration tried to get the nose under the tent to do, which is the Asia pivot. And so that's what the Trump administration is now very busy doing at a high tempo. Um, I would argue it still needs to be at a quicker tempo, and I hope would happen in a Trump two or a Biden one. Again, you know, I think because the, the window has been moved and you do see now a greater Democratic and Republican consensus to confront China in a way we need to. You know, you do not want to create a peak of Cold War environment where the Soviet Union and the United States were sort of on the brink of, of a nuclear exchange. We, we want to make sure that does not happen, which is why it's important that we're busy uh, trying to, to compete with and, if necessary, confront and raise the costs of China's bad activity and bad actions that threaten us. Yezra Klanjo will be back after a short break. One of the things embedded in some of what we're talking about here is China and some of these and some of the other countries or actors that we're, we're talking about have done terrible things, and that should figure into our foreign policy towards them. We mentioned the Uyghurs with China, but as you mentioned earlier, uh, if you're looking at a country where Donald Trump has clearly built a stronger, deeper, closer alliance than we had before, Saudi Arabia is a, a, a good example of that, and it's led to some actual uh, moments of cooperation there. On the other hand, they are morally terribly compromised country. Um, what they're doing in Yemen is a tremendous humanitarian disaster um, in terms of death toll, probably well beyond what's happened to the to the Uyghurs, although comparing the uh, atrocity Olympics is probably not a very useful thing to go into. Um, we have supported that outright. They killed a journalist, um, uh, you know, caught on tape with that. We haven't done much about that. How do you think as a moral realist about the Trump uh, administration's relationship with Saudi Arabia and how their support for, their both support for unsavory actors, but direct um, actions that are, I think, in violation of any reasonable moral accounting should figure into our foreign policy towards them? 
one, because the United States now is focused on great power competition, major power competition focused on China as the number one threat, Russia is the second kind of peer competitor. That doesn't mean, as you bring up Saudi Arabia, that doesn't mean that we're completely neglecting power politics in the Middle East. And that's something we still have to cover down on. We're still concerned about it. And just because I think there is a strong uh, desire from the Trump Trump administration and on the Democratic side that these long wars to try to build democracies in the Middle East has not been a good use of American blood and treasure. And not to say that I disagree with the initial military efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan, although Iraq, I think, is a more troublesome case, but definitely in Afghanistan, I was supportive of that and have been supportive of that. But but still, there's a, we have had a lot of chaos and, and tumult and civil wars and sectarian violence in that region. And so you have rightly identified part of what this Trump administration's approach to restabilize that area of the world so that the United States is not constantly in there rebuilding collapsed nations and that create massive refugee crises is to counter Iran and to support Saudi and other countries that rightly understand Iran as the primary malign threat to the region. And so you hear you have an instance where Saudi is the is the counter to Iran and then you have other Gulf partners that are siding with this effort to to push back on cuz you know it's not just Iran's nuclear program it's Iran's terrorism it's support for the the Yemen civil war that has been ongoing that's Iran's work um it's Iran's the one trying to destabilize the the very fragile Iraqi government and uh so, and of course, Iran's, Iran is the one that's fueling and funding Assad in Syria. So Iran's a major problem in the region. And that's why we've, we've put more eggs in, our, in the basket of Saudi Arabia. So it's a, it's a realist view of how do we handle all of these many problems in a very tough part of the world that has had sectarian violence for <laughs> centuries. And so that that has been the um, the approach, and that's why I think you've seen some of these great accomplishments, the normalization again with UAE and Israel and Bahrain and Israel. So you point out, okay, but what about Saudi's domestic atrocities? We are hoping, we the United States is hoping that MBS, the prince, who has a more secularist, if not you know, it's not like he ascribes to the Declaration of Independence and the natural rights that we believe all human beings have and their governments should respect. But he does have a more secularist view of what is good for his people than, say, his, you know, the old guard monarchy that exists that still wants a, a very uh, more Islamist Wahhabi government that's bad for women's rights and, and all those sorts of things that we would like to change. So it. MBS is better than the alternative is the short version. And and I even would though hope- the CIA concluded he ordered the execution of Jamal Khashoggi. So I mean that's a huge can of worms. I'm happy to open that one up and chat about that if you want for a minute. Um, but I, I I would just say briefly on on Khashoggi. Khashoggi was employed by the Washington Post, but he was not any sort of you know objective journalist by any sense. His death is awful. It's an atrocity. There, I do, there should be no extrajudicial killing anywhere happening anywhere on the planet. I think what was I mean happening. I'm not an objective journalist by any sense. Yeah, I'm a, but, but I have what, views on things and I hope not to be murdered for them. N- no, of course not. But you're an American. Citizen, and you you have a certain legal protections of which you know, as like 
I have gone to bat openly, publicly, very strongly anytime the Russians go after different American individuals that worked for the Obama administration, you know, who I have very, very different views on, but they're Americans and it's an affront to the, all of the American people whenever you have threats from a foreign nation against any American citizen. What I'm saying is there has to be some sort of um, governing principle that we operate on. The United States is not going to make huge changes to our foreign policy because of something that happens of, to an individual who was a Saudi citizen on Saudi soil in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. And it's a horrible thing, but it's not going to disrupt our entire foreign policy and our approach to the region. Having said that, I do think the United States should be talking hard and having some hard conversations and maybe implementing costs privately. But that's not something I think that rose to the level of disrupting our entire approach to trying to stabilize a region and create an environment that's more conducive to peace and that would uh, diminish the human suffering that has been going on there for, for many, many years. Do you think that there is a consistent way that the Trump administration sees human rights across the world? Um, and, and this is sort of what I was getting at when I did make that comparison between China and Saudi Arabia, that there are places where I will hear a lot about the abuses of a certain country. And then there are places where the answer I will get is something more like what, what, what you just gave on, on, on Saudi Arabia, which is like, well, we got to make hard choices in a hard world. And so like, what is the role of, of human rights? And by the way, I don't want to exempt other, um, this will be a question for the Biden administration. If they are lucky enough to get elected, it was a question in past administrations. But in terms of Donald Trump, I'm, I'm curious how you, how you, what you think the actual approach there is, like what is the governing philosophy if there is one? Yeah, I, I would say, um, if you look, if you look at the pattern of when in Donald Trump's official remarks that he makes whenever he brings up human rights, he brings up the human rights issue in the context of trying to carry out a particular policy, punishment, coercion of another country that is threatening the United States. Many people point out we haven't heard a lot about North Korea's human rights atrocities since the, the summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. But We've heard a lot about North Korea's human rights violations during the during Donald Trump's State of the Union when we were sort of in the fire and fury stage of things when he was trying to compel Kim to make the decision to stop testing and launching intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. And, and so, I mean, I would say, and again, this is this is just kind of looking at the the patterns over the last three and a half years. I'm I'm not suggesting or claiming that I know that the administration is sitting back like the Wizard of Oz and coming up with this very uniform, fleshed out ideological view of how human rights play in grand strategy. But what I have noticed is President Trump has uh, discussed and talked about human rights and has punished, like we've said, we've seen punished punishment against members of the Chinese Communist Party for their activity in related to the, the, the Muslim concentration camps in China. So again, I, I would make it as a moral realist, I would say, you know, the, the realist school of thought that, that, that argues that we shouldn't care so much about these, the morality of things are, you know, what they say is everything's about power politics and you can't really look to that stuff. I would say it's actually not true because you can't possibly understand what the threats are to the United States if you don't understand the kinds of countries that we're talking about. If the Chinese Communist Party 
was this flourishing democracy, we would have some means and mechanisms to have more transparent dialogues. We wouldn't be having all the problems we're having with China. So you have to discuss the internal politics if you are to actually come up with a strategy to defend the United States, strengthen our hand, increase our sovereignty, and and punish these bad actors, or at least kind of push them back so that they're not threatening the United States to the extent that they previously were. Um, So that's a really long-winded answer to say, you know, there are certain countries, I mean, goodness, there are, people talk to me about, you know, we need to stay in Afghanistan for eternity because women are treated so badly. You know, I point out that 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 is a horrible thing. I, I hate the thought of 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 the fate of these women in Afghanistan. But there, I mean, there are, women are in a really tough spot all across the world if they have these corrupt and very violent extremist governments. And so the United States has to have some kind of guiding principle of where we intervene and where we um, are, are trying to correct that problem. And it has to have a connection and a tie to what is achievable. And that would bring about greater stability that would benefit the American people. Let me ask some forward-looking questions about what a a Trump second term might look like. Um, Something that I think has been a subtext of some of the tensions in his foreign policy, but also achievements in his foreign policy we've talked about here has been that for much of Trump's first term, I would say there was some amount of constructive tension between him and his foreign policy advisors. And it's particularly a place where Early on, you had people with independent power sources and, and authority, people like, uh, you know, your Jim Mattis's, your John Kelly's, uh, your um, Tillerson's and, and, and so on. And what's I think slowly happened, uh, John Bolton in a different way, although somebody I'm less fond of, what's happened over time has been that Trump has, as he's gotten more confident and got more capable, I think, as president, begun to replace those folks with uh, people who are more loyal directly to him. Uh, your Richard Grinnell is that kind of person. And I wonder if his second term foreign policy won't look quite different because he won't be in this, you know, constructive and often I think for him very frustrating tension with a more traditional Republican foreign policy uh, world. And instead, it's going to be quite unleashed. And I worried, uh, enabled by people who got where they are by not telling him when they think he's wrong, um, as opposed to there being ways in which Donald Trump pushes the people around him and ways in which the people around him check Donald Trump. How do you see that playing out? So I have appreciated the fact that Donald Trump seems to really like the the arguments, the fights internally. He he brings different people in. You know, Jim Mattis, before he he left over a strong disagreement about the president's policy towards Syria, Jim Mattis was very transparent about the fact when he met with Donald Trump that they had strong disagreements um, on some policy issues. But, but Donald Trump brought him on anyway. He, there wasn't this ideological test that we keep hearing about or, or you know, rumors that this exists. What, what I think is going on is... You know, H.R. McMaster, who was the first national security advisor, he's got a new book out. He's a colleague of mine at Hudson Institute. And he's talked about this on the sort of the media outlet where he said that it's he, what, what needs to happen is you, you can have strong disagreements with the president of the United States, but at the end of the day, you still have to carry out his policies. And that's what I think has been a problem is it's one thing to disagree with the president of the United States, but when he makes a decision, he is the elected official, you got to do what he says. And that's what I think. I think that the president and some of his closest advisors, some of the things that they've talked about, I think that there is some merit to to their their concern there, that there's been 
people, bureaucrats, that really strongly disagree with what the, the president's trying to do. And so they see it as sort of this, you know, Superman complex that they're going to prevent the president from carrying out his agenda. That's wrong. And that's, you know, for all of this complaints we hear about President Trump violating norms, that is a violation of norms in our democratic system. You, you're, you're, the experts are there to provide their input. And then when the president makes a decision, you carry it out. I mean, one of the reasons that we are still in Afghanistan after so many years of the president really wanting to withdraw is because he does continue to listen to his military advisors. So, you know, and there's lots of people in there dragging their feet about American withdrawal. I, I would suspect that in a second Trump term, you know, the president's going to make sure that he's got folks in place on the political side that carry out his his desire to to see a very significant drawdown of American presence in in Afghanistan. So again, I would differentiate between loyalty to the strict loyalty to the president of the United States because of this because of his personality or or you know something like that is obviously very very bad for the United States. You know, we we're not a monarchy <laughs> and Americans we govern ourselves and so you don't even, you know, you don't need to be a fan of the president to go work for him and carry out your your duty to the country. But after you make your advice and your counsel to the president of the United States, you do have to carry out what he has decided is going to happen next. But one of the things that uh, I want to know if you think that will be a better foreign policy, because something I've been tracking been in our conversation is there are places where one of the consistent themes in the testimony of these foreign um, uh, advisors of his, foreign policy advisors of his, is that at times, Trump will just want to pull all the way out of something, pull all the way out of the WTO, pull all the way out of NATO, like make a really big right turn in American foreign policy. And they will sort of pocket veto that for a while until he calms down and, and is in a different state of mind a couple of days later. Um, and I think in, in our talking, I think you've been happy that there's been, on the one hand, this tension of him really pushing these organizations and sometimes pulling back from them, but not really withdrawing from the world too much, not um, upending our alliances too much. I agree with you that in a second term, Donald Trump is going to have people who carry out his will more um, more effectively. What kind of foreign policy do you think that will make? Do you think you will be happier with it or, or less happy? I mean, I would have no way of knowing. I can only judge, you know, past the three and a half years and say that if it's a continuation of the of the next you know, term, then I think that that it would be a good thing. I know that there are individuals surrounding the president who who very much want to make some greater progress on shifting again to the to the Pacific theater. And there has been a lot of resistance. And some of it's just sort of bureaucratic inertia that goes on inside the Pentagon. You know, senior officers don't want their programs to be cut. And it's just kind of a thing that happens. And so it takes a long hard effort and a big bowl in a China, a big bowl to kind of go in there and, and break some China. And, and so I, I actually think some of that's necessary to cut some major weapons programs and to, to, draw, to draw down or stop some efforts that the United States has been on, you know, carrying out for many, many years in order to use our limited resources to, to shift to, to, to deterring China and deterring Russia more effectively, like moving troops, you know, to, to Poland and, and, and beefing up our presence in Poland. So I don't know, you know, I can't tell the future. I, I think that one of my concerns, if I were to offer a criticism of the president's approach that I hope would be remedied in a second term, is that some of the harsher language rhetoric that he has used against our allies, for instance, calling 
and I'm paraphrasing here, but but identifying the European Union as a greater threat to the United States than some of our ad- true adversaries or hostile adversaries like China or Russia, that kind of thing. Even though I recognize that the Europeans need to make some major serious changes, you know, I I would hope or or uh, focusing so much on trade with Japan and focusing on that as a primary issue rather than looking at all of the other benefits to that alliance that we glean from having a great partnership there. You know, so I hope some of these conversations, though some, some of it was good, some of it bore some good fruit, that those that, 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 that take kind of changes and that we move some of those conversations to the private sphere and put a more public, collaborative effort, publicly diplomatic, you know, unified front. So, and then my primary reason for that is one of the great achievements, we think about Pax Americana, the great American peace that we've had is part of that since we've had since the Second World War is we do provide a nuclear umbrella and security assurances when it comes to our nuclear weapons to our allies and partners. And the agreement is they don't get nuclear weapons because they are confident in America's commitment to them that should they be attacked by a nuclear power, that we would have their back as the as a as a major nuclear power. And I and I so I want to make sure that we're sensitive to the health of those alliances and that we don't put cracks in the confidence of our allies like South Korea or Japan, so that they might think that it's time for them to to have their own nuclear capabilities. So I I you know, that, that, that's a real thing that we need to tend to and be cognizant of, even as we take a tough love approach to our allies and trying to get them to make some decisions that are more productive and conducive to, to our shared security. I think it's a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you what's always our final question. What are three books you've been influenced by that you would recommend to the audience? Oh, that's a great question. So I love um, The World America Made uh, by Rob Kagan. I've gone back and I've reread that recently and think that there it, we it, going back and kind of rehashing and looking at what the United States is and done and the effect it's had on the world I think is important although I do not agree with everything in that book it's an important book um, I just read Patrick Porter's book on the liberal international world order and essentially him being he's a he's an analyst at the Quincy Institute about his disappointments in that and the failures of that. And um, and so I did a review for that. And so I would commend that to your listeners at, at Law and Liberty. And I, I kind of lay out his argument. And then even though I disagreed with his conclusions and some of the identity, you know, how he identified some of the problems, it was very um, profitable for me to think through uh, his views. So I would recommend that. Um, and then I would recommend um, Robert Gates's books, and he's got a new one out. I haven't finished it, but the, the his previous one on duty, I recommend it because I do see Bob Gates as one of the more thoughtful leaders that has had his hands in both Democratic and Republican administrations and can offer some really fruitful, constructive criticisms for how the United States can return to a more prudent statecraft without abandoning the principles that make our country what it is and form our national identity. Rebecca Heinrichs, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you to Rebecca Heinrichs for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for excellent research on this episode, to Jackson Bierfeld for engineering and producing the Ezra Pancho's Vox Media podcast production. 